0: Welcome, everybody, to another edition of the Grant Williams Podcast. Joining me this week is a dear friend of mine and a man who casts a meaningful shadow over the podcast world, Dimitri Kafinas. Dimitri's show, Hidden Forces, is among the smartest, the most eclectic, the most insightful podcasts that you'll find anywhere. And Dimitri is not only a peerless host, but by far the best prepared man in the podcasting world. Every episode of Hidden Forces is guaranteed to make you think, to challenge your preconceptions, and to leave you with uh, as many questions as you have answers. However, this week, I get to turn the mic around on Dimitri and give you an insight into his life, the incredible journey he took to reach where he currently finds himself, and to discuss a concept he conceptualized uh, long before the recent GameStop, Reddit, Cryptomania became front-page news around the world, the idea of financial nihilism. Now, those two words have been rattling around my brain since Dimitri uttered them when I appeared as his guest, and I wanted to flesh that idea out with him and discuss what I believe is an enormously important concept in today's financial markets and beyond. So please join me for my conversation with my friend, Dimitri Kofinas. Well, Dimitri, mate, I am so pleased to get the chance to turn the microphone on you. Thanks for doing this for me. I really appreciate it.
1: This is so cool, man. Thank you for having me.
0: You know, you and I, um, I was thinking about this, this this week as I've been kind of thinking about the stuff I want to talk to you about. And uh, I went back to the, you and I first met. It was almost 10 years ago now when we had dinner in New York City. And, Even longer.
1: Um, oh, you were right. 10 years ago. Yeah, about, right, about 10 right. years yeah. ago.
0: About 10 years ago. But you, and had and been, a, you
1: had been on Capital Account, hadn't you?
0: Yeah, I had. I had been on Capital right. Account. Um which is which is where the kind of connection came from, and we had a we had a great dinner down in, in the meatpacking district in New York City, mm-hmm. and um, and that was a lot of fun. But that was ten years ago, and then and then you know you and I lost touch, and and I didn't really understand why we lost touch. It wasn't that we were in constant contact or anything, but we kind of lost touch for a couple of years. And it wasn't until we reconnected a few years later that um, that I kind of you explained what had been happening in your life, and, and what an unbelievable story it was. And so, what I want to do, if we can, to, to start this podcast, because I, I think there's a lot of people that listen to Hidden Forces, um, and you know, you're such a great host, but we don't get the chance that often to listen to you tell your story. And so, I, I want to really go back to the Capital Count days, how that all happened, uh, you know, the kind of personal life events that happened after that, and then I really want to dig into the meat of Hidden Forces because you and I share a lot of similar beliefs and and, and kind of thought processes around what's important. And, and, I, and I really want to sit down and have a chance to discuss that with you. So if you can, just take us back and take all the time you want. You can, you can dwell on the bits that you think are important and, uh, and skip over the bits that you don't, and I'll maybe make you rewind and maybe not. Let's see how we go. <laughs> well, um,
1: I guess it depends on where we start. I mean, uh, I, I guess I, the way I think of the starting point of my career was once I got into radio, I mean, I had been blogging on the side because, you know, you and I began our careers at a time where blogs were really a really yeah. great way to get your content out. And I had a blog, and I was blogging, and no one was really reading it, but I was blogging anyway because <laughs> I enjoyed it. And uh, and then eventually, I got on radio. I got our radio program. I had absolutely no experience in radio, and I I just took to it. Uh, it was just it was absolutely natural for me, and I enjoyed it so much. It was the first opportunity I had to reach out to all these people who I respected from afar and who were like celebrities to me. You, not, you know this, I've, i told you my experience with Jim Grant. That's how Jim and I met. I, uh, I went to a gold conference where he was, he was there. And I think the other people on stage were uh, Michael Steinhardt and um, Edward Chancellor, and it was a gold debate. And so I, yeah, I asked him a question. I tried to get him on my show. Eventually I did get him. I got him on my TV show. But even in my television show, I had absolutely no experience in television. And I had I had only been on TV for the first time a couple of months before I got an offer to create my own TV program. Right. And that was a daily live program. Yeah. And uh, and that experience was, I was also telling you this, I w- I've been reading Tim Grover's book. Tim Grover is the former strength, the former personal trainer for Michael Jordan, Kobe Bryant, and a lot of the greatest athletes of all time. And he talks about, um, he talks about like what it's like to really try and strive for that. Again, he's talking about people that are trying to, you know, win NBA championships. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But for me, Capital Account was the equivalent of that. It was this incredibly insane idea for a a 30-year-old kid who has absolutely no experience in TV to just stroll into a television studio, convince— the executives that they should hand them the keys to the castle and then corral a group of people with degrees from McGill and Northwestern and other places professional journalists to actually listen to what he has to say and it was it was an incredible experience i mean i i operated under immense amounts of stress for 2 years that probably played a role in in what eventually were symptoms of a brain tumor that i had going into the job a right. big reason why i did it in the first place was because I I knew that I had a limited amount of time or I, I didn't know how much time I had because of a diagnosis I had gotten only a couple of year, years earlier. So it was just, it was this incredible experience. I got to meet you. I got to meet all sorts of people, put on this incredible program and touch so many people and interact with so many people. Mm-hmm. And I just loved it. And uh, and you know this. I when we when we had met in New York City for the first time, I was dealing with severe symptoms. I think it was like May of twenty thirteen.
0: Yeah, yeah, springtime. Yeah.
1: Yeah, and I was dealing with severe dementia at the time. Uh, I probably at that point still didn't know if I had because I was afraid to go get checked up again. I was avoiding getting blood tests. Sure. I knew I had a brain tumor, but. I just didn't want to accept the possibility that my brain tumor had grown to a place where it was causing dementia, which were symptoms that I never told, I, I was never told I, was, I would get. So I, I just, and I had such a fatalistic view of the whole situation that my sort of view was, well, I'm going to die from this thing. So I'll just, I'll just run the wheels off the train. And that's how I lived my life. and uh, And so... Uh, that 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 experience, so to say, anyway, with capital account stayed with me, and after my recovery from brain surgery, which I got about a month after you and I went to to, to dinner, to dinner yeah. would you remember the restaurant we were at?
0: I, I, I remember it very well. I couldn't tell you what it was called. But I, I thought it was I called.
1: Couldn't... I thought we were at Otto for some reason, which would have been on Eighth Street. That was my memory. A pizza place. But I might have been thinking of a different hey, listen, place because you, you said You, meat pa- you said meatpacking. You might meat be
0: right. It was definitely on the meatpacking district. I remember okay. that.
1: Okay. Oh, it was okay. I remember yeah. it for some reason. I had it in my head that we met, uh, that we met at Otto and Oteca. What's his name's um, restaurant? The the uh, the guy that has uh, those Italian restaurants. Anyway, he got me too. It also like a bunch of these other guys, <laughs> um, and it was on Eighth Street. That was my memory. But I got all those memories back after my brain surgery. You know, I had, i had they were written to the hard drive, but I didn't have access to them. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And it was a whole, I've written a whole article about this. But anyway, after my brain surgery, I struggled. Um, this was, you know, I had gone through such a, a, a long period of, you know, in some sense, suffering, struggling, et cetera, to get to a place where I was living the life that I always wanted, but didn't know what it was, which was when I created my, my radio program in New York and then the TV show to then losing it all and having to yeah. start all over again. And this, again, I brought up Tim's book. This is kind of why, why I brought up Tim's book because he talks about these types of examples. He talks about the road to paradise starting in hell. you know, and, and that's what it was like coming back and really having lost any desire to do anything like I was doing when I had capital account, but still wanting that whatever it was, wanting that passion, that sense of like mission every day, waking up and just throwing throwing yourself right into the meat grinder and not knowing how it's going to work, how you're going to do it, but coming out the other end over and over and over again. And that experience of being under immense amounts of stress and it breaking you and revealing all the worst and best parts about you and all the other people that you work with. And- you know, th- that's ultimately like the memories that I have from that period are both how the the challenge of actually doing it, and also these incredible relationships that I formed with people under immense stress doing something that was just totally insane.
0: Well, let, let me ask you. Let's go, let's go back to when you when you actually landed that capital account job because, um, a how the hell did you do that? Because as you said, right, that's that's an incredible thing to convince someone to do. It. And then, but once you got it, you know, I remember. The first time I changed jobs, um, yeah, it was, I'd been working for 10 years in the same place and I'd traveled, I spent time in Tokyo for him, and came back to London and, and I'd had multiple job offers and my boss, who was a great friend of mine, I would always tell him when I had a job offer, I'd say, look, I've been offered this. And he would always say, no, 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 no. And eventually one came along and he said to me, this is the one, this is the one you've got to take. And if you don't take it, I'm going to fire you. So, so I took that job, but I remember being excited about it. But spending the first six months terrified, feeling completely out of my depth, feeling a total fraud, feeling I was going to get found out any minute. Now it's like this is I've made a huge mistake here. Um, how, did did you experience that, or were you so focused? And, and if so, how did you? Because I was just one partner cop. You're the guy, right? So you can't quietly sit down and learn from other people and, you know, take a little back seat until you find your feet. You've got to go in there, guns blazing and lead the thing. So how did you deal with that? You know, I was terrified. In fact, fear
1: really held me back in the early part of my life. Um, and being diagnosed with a brain tumor at the age of 20, I think it was 28 now, it, uh, it liberated me. And I I remember uh, I remember distinctly a moment of sheer, sheer, well, sheer terror might be a little bit of a stretch. I, cl- as close as you can get to sheer terror without it being sheer terror. Like very, very frightened about to go live on international TV. The first time I was ever being interviewed in my life. And I was getting that reaction that you get, like, you know, when you see your own blood or you're like having an injection going, you know what I mean? It's like, Trust. and I said to myself, it's, it's, it, Dimitri, you... You have a brain tumor and you could die soon. And that alleviated my fear, I put it all in context. And that, that internal disc- monologue, that reference point, served me for the rest of my life up until my brain surgery. So that even when I went back to, because this was in Athens when I was interviewed internationally, I had, I had gone to Athens for a wedding. And that's sort of how all of that cascaded and I got on TV. And I said yes to every opportunity. I ran into danger and i felt fear but I, I it was a mix of fear and adrenaline and i i can't it didn't feel the way it used to feel it wasn't um it didn't immobilize me and then when i got to washington dc at that point i i ha- i don't know if i felt i definitely felt uh, probably some amount of fear uh some amount of I don't know though if I felt doubt. I I think I got to such a place where I was manifesting the life I wanted in a way that I never had before and I had just developed this confidence. And I and again, you know, it, it's not a huge part of my life anymore, but the context of of facing mortality every day with something that's inside of your head which could end your life and end your ability to create at any moment. It just it changes. Yeah. It just changes your sense of 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 danger. And it uh, because this is the thing that scares you. It's this tumor. So everything else outside of th- of that isn't really scary, and no one else really scares you. You know, and everything is really a test. It's a way to prove to yourself that you're okay. And so that's kind of what ended up happening. Yeah. Everything was. Everything was an opportunity for me to show myself that I was—I still had it in the gym, at work, everywhere. It was an opportunity to test myself. So, yeah, I, I would say that by—I think that by the time I was in D.C., I don't know that I really felt fear as much as I felt just this constant adrenaline to perform.
0: Yeah, yeah. So, so, but but then when you when you when you when you come back into this business, obviously you're, you're kind of starting again, and you've got to. It's kind of semi-reinvent yourself. You, you, so so how do you go about doing that? What, what was it that drove you to create Hidden Forces? What was the original idea behind it?
1: Well, you know, as I said, after I had my surgery in 2013, and I lost any interest in doing financial content, and Capital Account was a financial program. It was a global macro-focused show on markets that was born out of the financial crisis. Yeah. And the, the, of which we'll eventually get into in this conversation because we're living in the aftermath of those mm-hmm. those policy decisions. But I, I just, I didn't have any interest in in going back there. And also Capital Account was such an ideological program. I had a very simplistic template for understanding the world and I stuck to that. And because it was a daily news program, I had to really just find... So I, every day I would go and say, okay, how are central banks destroying the world today, guys? Let's find the story right. that tells us how they're destroying the world. Right. You know, okay. how, are, how how is the government evil? We've all
0: evil? been there. We've all yeah, been there. <laughs>
1: yeah, But so I didn't want to do that and it, it, because I was in a much more uh, inquisitive frame of mind. But I, I didn't, you know, I really, I just felt there was a kind of... Uh, there was an apathy for that type of stuff, for intellectual pursuits, because I was much more driven to explore the spiritual, emotional dimensions of what I had just been through. And so I tried to do that. I really did. And I, I, I began working in, in the nonprofit space on, on a series of institutes, one of which had to do with death and dying for a nonprofit. I put on a, a conference on the subject. It was really, it was an amazing experience. But it, the, the, the field of competition was not my pace. I was too right, energetic, right. too amped up, too aggressive for the nonprofit world. <laughs> it just wasn't for me. And, and I wasn't for them. That's just, we'll be clear about that. And then eventually I, I started a theater company. And that play, that was sort of for two reasons. Because actually before I started the theater company, between when I was at the nonprofit, in order to feed this internal, this, this desire this inquisitiveness, I began going to New York City meetups, Mm -hmm. uh, machine learning, Internet of Things, do-it-yourself IoT stuff, um, virtual reality, blockchain, and just to sort of get it back in touch with tech. Because I began my career in tech. I began my career in the video game industry and in the application development and design UI side of television. That's how I got into my work and <clears throat> that's how I got in my work into, into finance, or into TV. So I, I, I started, the, so I was doing that, I was going to these meetups, and I was discovering that every time people asked me what I did, because they'd be like, oh, you have such interesting takes, what do you do? And it was really hard to tell people what I did, because I felt like what I did wasn't really representative, and I ended up telling them about what I used to do, because I felt right, like right. what I used to do was who I was, but that doesn't really work. So I f- this opportunity just, it, again, it came. You, you get opportunities in life and you either say yes to them or you say no to them. And, uh, you know, if I ever, if there's one just basic piece of advice that I would tell people is just say yes. If something yeah. scares you, say yes. That's an indicator that it's for you, you know? Yeah. And, uh, and so I, I, um, I, I had this opportunity to produce my first off-Broadway theatrical production to take full control of it kind of similarly to how I did with Capital Account. Mm -hmm. And I took it and I created a theater company and I put on three subsequent productions. And that experience, both, it served two purposes. One, it gave me something that I could say that I did that was interesting. Right. You know, and it was very interesting to be in a group of tech people and say, I have a theater company. And it was a really cool theater company. Um, So it was this way of sort of getting my foot in the door, a really expensive, ridiculous way (laughs) to make an impression among amongst a, a bunch of nerds but it also gave me the opportunity to to get in touch with to be with people whose passions was were aligned with what they were doing you know actors sure you know and to be around that silliness and excitement and energy and passion was infectious and so it, it was it was those two things and out of that experience came the inspiration to write my story of what I had been through with my brain tumor, which I published for Quartz, the Atlantic's Quartz magazine in the fall of 2015. And out of that began to brew the, um, the source of hidden forces. And in the summer of, or maybe it was in the summer of 2016 that I wrote the article, but it was in the summer of 2016 that I got the idea for hidden forces. And from that moment, once I had it in me, and it started with my rekindling my 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 love for technology and science, and that's in the show when it began. I mean, it, there were episodes on philosophical mathematics, anarchism, cyber warfare, space war was episode six. Yeah. So, uh, but in, in any case, I, and I I started it in, in February of twenty seventeen, and ever since then I've just I've just enjoyed every minute of it. I've loved it.
0: But what but what was what was the framework originally? What did you set out? To create because uh, you know, as as a long-time and avid listener it's morphed and changed so much yeah. over those 4 years what did you set out to create and once you'd done that how did it drift because I, I know you well enough to know yeah. nothing's accidental you don't yeah. you don't accidentally do anything you think everything through and you you know you, you you make very clear decisions about what you want to do so so just run me through that journey because i'm interested
1: yeah i think I looked back actively, deliberately at what it was that I loved so much about Capital Account because the struggle was that I loved my time and my experience there and I kept calling the people that I had great relationships with there. And my I kept running into this similar experience, which was that my recollection of that time and my love for it was at odds with their own experience. They were happy to be past that phase. You know Christ, what I mean? Christ. Have a you know and I wasn't. And I was like, well, why, why am I so stuck on this experience that at the same time, I don't want to go back to Because everyone keep, kept telling me, Dimitri, why are you not doing something again that's financial? You were so good at it. And I, I couldn't answer that question. And so I started to, 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 to ask it, you know, what was it about markets that I loved so much? And the sort of basic explanation I came to was that I loved, markets were the most complicated data set that I knew of. And what I loved about them was that they were this unsolvable problem, this unsolvable puzzle. And people were always trying to figure out what's driving the market. And I was always trying to figure out what's driving the market, what's really responsible for what's happening here. And I realized that that same question was what fueled me my entire life. It began when I was a kid trying to understand what happens when I die. And it fueled every single question that I nagged my parents with, you know, and everything else. I always wanted to know what's, what's really driving this? Can we get deeper? Can we get deeper here? And, and you know, philosophically it was, an on, it, was, it was an ontological question about the nature of reality, which was something that always concerned me. And so that's where this idea of hidden forces came from. It was like, okay, can I, can I apply that template and that love across all these different disciplines? Can I can I apply that same rubric? And the idea with with hidden forces was I keep going back to capital account. Yeah, I know. And yeah, it's I know. crazy, right? <laughs> <laughs> um, the idea of hidden forces was to 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 try and understand the the elemental truths about whatever it was that interested me, and also to to. To get a seat at the, at the table again. I mean, like I said, I, I missed being part of the conversation. I saw all these different folks still out there engaging on Twitter, having important, what felt like important conversations about issues that were happening out in the world. And I was tired of being a passive observer. I wanted to engage. And that's that's where it came from. But it has evolved. I mean, it began as a much more inquisitive pursuit where I was, I was much more, I was very uncomfortable Expressing a strong view. Uh, although there was a, a, a strong amount of, it, there was a, a great deal of insecurity in me at the time when I began it. And so, what may have seemed like an opinion at the time in various circumstances was me just trying to come across as smart or That's... wanting people to like me, you know? But now it's, it's really, it has gotten to a point now where I do feel a sense of responsibility. And a role to play at, in a time, and you you and I have talked about this before. We were talking about it just now when, before we turn on the, the microphone, which is that I think that we are living during what I believe will be the most important time of my life. You know, in 50 years from now, 30 years from now, I don't expect my life to have as much meaning as it has now. And when I say not necessarily my personal life, but the role that I have to play in the world. Yeah. Because I think the world itself is at a critical juncture, the kind of juncture that you get every hundred years or so.
0: I absolutely agree with that so strongly. And and that's, you know, it's it's so interesting to me that the contrast between your understanding of how important times are and something that I really want to talk to you about, and that is a, a, almost a throwaway remark you made about a year ago, right, right before lockdown started when Ben Hunt and I both came into the studio in New York and... and and sat down for a conversation. And, and you talked about this idea of financial nihilism
1: mm.
0: and, and it, and it kind of hit me at the time, but it was kind of a slap around the cheek at the time. And I, and I, and I thought about it and I thought about it and, it and it, it kind of went away, but never really completely went away. And it's been kind of bouncing around the back of my head ever since, you know, this is, this is what, uh, almost two years now, probably no year, year in year change. Mm. And in the last six months, it's just forced its way to the front of my head because I see so much going on that paints that picture that you distilled down into two words, but it's so much more than that. And and I think it's so much more important than that because because when you talk about your life's never going to be more important than it is now, I think that's correct. But what I see happening is exactly what you described in those, in those two beautifully chosen words. Mm. And, and so I, I I've been dying to get you to kind of expand on that for some time now. So let's talk about the idea of financial nihilism and and where you first saw it and and how you came to kind of conceptualize that idea and what it means to you.
1: Yeah, well, I define market nihilism as a philosophy that treats the objects of speculation as though they were intrinsically worthless. And it, it doesn't just discount empirical truth or ignore objective reality it fully embraces the view that reality is entirely subjective. And it, it incorporates that into an investing framework where value is no longer determined or ascertained through some objective measurement. Yeah. Existing independent of price. But it, it is in fact price. In other words, the, the price of the token or the ticker is the thing. Yeah. And 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 so that idea just came to me from watching markets repeatedly seem to discount anything related to the world, related to news, and 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 just cease functioning as though reality mattered, as though there was a relationship, regardless how tenuous, between
0: the world and prices. But, Does that but make that, sense? That- yeah, no, it does, but, that, but it, it might begin like that. But, but what's happened since then makes that phrase so much more accurate and so much more powerful because it, we've not only seen that idea that things don't matter anymore in the abstract sense, i.e. this bomb attack here doesn't move the markets and, and this particular comment by a politician, politician hasn't moved the markets. That stuff doesn't matter but what we've seen since then with the rise of, you know, the, the Wall Street bets crowd, the Reddit crowd, with cryptos, with, with so many different things, is that is real nihilism. It's like hmm. I don't matter, life doesn't matter, my money doesn't matter, nothing matters except being involved in this, whatever it is, whatever meme is current at the moment. I, and, and I, hmm. I kind of get that in a way but I really struggle to think that it's either a good thing for the individual or, or society. And I, and I really wonder where it leads. So, so, so you know, how, how have you watched this financial nihilism evolve and change over the last, uh, whatever, 18 months? That's
1: a good question. Because um, I do think that you can't separate what's going on in markets from what's going on in society. No, absolutely right. I do look at at 2008 as a watershed moment, because I think in in some ways what happened in 2008 through a set of deliberate policy choices is that that moment of clarity that comes every so often in business cycles and in life was suspended. And with that, you had a suspension, you had a, 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 a stasis that occurred in society where an entire generation of people and i and i think this is also not coincidental that you tend to define this kind of nihilistic approach to investing and to life among a particular group of people a certain generation i think a lot of those a lot of millennials and now zoomers have been kind of disenfranchised and locked out of the 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 economic game so to speak and I think that, I mean, that plays, I, I, one of the jokes I, I make is that the boomers had um, sex, drugs, and rock and roll, and that millennials have Bitcoin, you know? And I, I think that there's something about that, because hearing, hearing my generation and younger people talk about, talk about Bitcoin or talk about uh, stonks. Feels very empty. It feels very meaningless. It doesn't yeah, right. really feel like there. There. It doesn't really feel like there's something bigger.
0: Yeah. No. No. I. I. I completely agree. But again, when you've when you've come from a, a background of finance, and I've come from a background of finance, and may, look, maybe I'm too invested, and I think it means too much. That's that's quite possible. But what I see with things like. The Hertz debacle, for example, mm-hmm. right? it's perfect. Great it's example. a perfect example. Yeah. When we watch that going on, anyone that that has had a history in finance and spent any time in the game, anybody watching that, you could see that this was utterly futile. What was going on? And and yes, while the stock went up, you know, in, in the middle of bankruptcy and with no recovery, it was clearly worthless. Some people made some money, but the people who were trying to make the real money, were trying to swing to the fences and, and, and make you know, life-changing home runs there, you knew that th- that was not going to work out for them. You knew that what they were trying to do was not going to pay off personally, but was going to help the people who understood the game to you know, make returns. They never either make returns or save themselves losses that they mm. were convinced they were going to have to take. And so, you know, when you watch this stuff, this nihilism, this, this, I don't care if I lose. It it was at one point crystallized into, I want to stick it to the suits. Mm. And and I just, I really struggle with it because I get the kind of motivations and the, the feeling of inequality and the feeling of hopelessness and and that kind of thing. But the thing that I guess I really struggle with is how it has been turned into a game. All of it. It's just a game. Mm. And, this is a game with real-world consequences, and, and I don't know that people fully understand it, or maybe they do, and they really don't care. Now, to be clear, I, I should add that, uh, you know, the, at the end of Hertz, with the used car market exploding and, and the final bid out of bankruptcy, some people did actually make some money on that, right? Uh, but you can guarantee it wasn't many of the retail investors who got swung around. Most of the gains went to, um, you know, the suits. But um, but, look, what, what do you make of this whole phenomenon?
1: Yeah, I mean, a, a couple of things. First, I feel that, I, again, this is, I'm trying to intuit what the zeitgeist is and what people are feeling. And it's not obviously something that I can quantify or measure in any sort of empirical way. But I think part of it is that people seem to feel a lack of liveliness. There's the, there's a desire to feel alive. And what may come across as a as masochism, and maybe it is, when you see these people on Reddit threads posting screenshots of their wrecked Robin Hood Yeah,
0: yeah. Yeah,
1: I think that part of that is about getting feeling something. Because maybe they graduated in 2008 or 2009 and never really got a job and kind of have been floating around and they're... They're 30 years old now, or 32, or they 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 don't have a girlfriend, or you know you keep there's a there's a huge percentage of the population that is in some way within that 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 cohort, and it's it it impacts politics as well. It's I think part of the reason that our politics is so is so unstable because a lot of the volatility that was taken out of financial markets by, by policymakers has shown up as discontented masses in politics. I just I think that you know I don't I don't know exactly I, I wish I could tell you what I think is is going on other than to say that there's rot there's a kind of societal decay and and also I think technology plays a role you know I think that there's a lot of people are with automation also. A lot of stuff just gets done and people don't have to think about it. And part of that, people, I think, partly approach markets that way because markets have become increasingly automated, Mm -hmm. whether it is through systematic investing strategies or policymakers who create the false assurances that everything will return to normal, that equilibrium is markets slowly going up, and that you don't need to... Actually, play an active role as an investor in the process of price discovery and 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 valuations. That's not something that people seem to think about anymore. It's all about narrative. Mm-hmm. And that narrative can be very empty. It doesn't, it's only skin deep. You know, I did an episode with Lily Frankis where we talked about this in the case of GameStop. And it was really, and it's not the only time I've done this. I did a I did a recent episode actually on Ethereum and a thesis that someone had put forward for why its price was going to increase by like over 10x or 30x, and none of these explanations actually deal with, I would argue, really fundamental reality the way that you and I would think about it. Mm-hmm. It's really, in some ways, it's a, it's an, it's an advanced meta conception of the world, which is that the, the reality is what everyone else thinks it is, and so if I want to make money, I simply have to try and get ahead of the curve of what that narrative is going to be. And what's dangerous is that in such a world, you can actually co-create reality. You can yeah. play a role in shaping that reality. And that, again, there's a, there are a lot of parallel constructions here. That is, is, has a lot in common with how social media algorithms work. They give you more of what you want. They, don't, they construct your world based on your existing biases. Mm-hmm. And there is a level of stagnation there of stasis, which is that eventually when the algorithms become perfected, they give you a static world. They give you the representation that you came to the system with, and they, re- they throw it right back at you. And in a way, that is for me what 2008 was about. It was the beginning of the, the end of that catalytic process of boom and bust where we moved from a capitalist system, you're never a perfect capitalist system, right? Mm -hmm. Or anything, but we moved much more along the continuum of socialism. And I think that we've had a hard time really uh, voicing that, giving that a name, you know, because we say that we live in a capitalist system, there are prices in the market, you have to still buy things, but it's not the way that we would have conceptualized what capitalism was.
0: Yeah, I, I completely agree. And, I, and I have, one thing I've thought about, and I, I, I'd love to get your opinion on this because I, you know I grew up in the UK, and so for my entire life, gambling has been legal and everywhere. You know, even as a kid, every year my dad would put a bet on a horse in the Grand National for me. He'd put a pound. I'd pick a horse's name out, and he'd put a pound on the horse. So I, g- gambling was always available. I've never been someone that was a gambler. You know, I got enough of that in my job for thirty odd years. But this all seems to be happening just as gambling is becoming much more easily available in the United States. Does that play a part that 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 uh, people who haven't had any experience of that don't? It's not it's new to them and it's exciting and it does give them an escape. Does gambling play a big part in this? Do you think? Totally.
1: I th- well, I think that markets have become more like casinos. Yes, yeah, exactly. Say, right. and, and you know, this is a phenomenon that I talked about in my time in TV. With capital account, which is that savers were becoming speculators. Because in a world where money is free and it becomes harder to have an effect as an investor by applying a critical thinking framework to, to analyzing the value of something and attempting to purchase it at a, at a price that is below value, mm-hmm. as that becomes more difficult, then what is there really? Every, then chance plays a bigger and bigger role in outcomes. And so your investment strategy begins to actually reflect that. And so I think that it's not a coincidence that we see that, and that we see it in markets as well, that there is this kind of, let's just YOLO, you only live once. I'm just going to throw my stimulus check into the market and just hopefully make a larger turn. And I think also, Grant, part of the explanation is also the fact that returns don't mean much anymore unless they're big. Everything needs to be enormous. Yeah. Otherwise it doesn't make a dent. It doesn't make a dent in your debt. It doesn't make a dent in house payments. It doesn't it doesn't really matter. And on top of that, money is at the same time as it's more difficult to attain than it ever was, it also seems to matter more than it did at any time in my life. People are I mean, if you scroll through social media, the 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 amount of images that have people mm-hmm. whether they're taking a fake photo shoot in an airplane, in a private jet, or they're you know, walking around with their selfie sticks, whatever people use today to take pictures of themselves or putting filters on their images. There's this artificial construction of reality, and a lot of that has to do with money and this unattainable amount of wealth. So I feel like that is a big part of what drives people to treat money and also the fact that it, money has become free and that we, we've confused capital with credit in the years since the financial crisis.
0: I mean, if you if you think about gambling at the casino anyone that goes into the casino knows that the house has the edge, right? But they think that they're going to be the guy who walks away with the big ticket. But, you know, what's amazed me for, for short periods of time over the last year is that you would think going into the stock market, if you liken it to a casino that the house and by the house mean, I mean, you know, incumbent professional investors would have a way bigger edge than the house of a casino. And yet, What's been interesting is for short periods of time, the the guys running in and screaming around the tables, of the stock market have managed actually to take away that edge and to, to create currents and cross-currents in markets that have completely and utterly obliterated strategies and, and investment styles and techniques that have worked for centuries. Yeah. So there has been you know, a degree of success in terms of people kind of storming the barricades, and coming out winners but as i you know as i look at it the more and more people that that sucks in the more difficult it then becomes to be the kind of crazy one at the table making all the stupid bets that happens to get lucky every now and again do you, do you see this trend continuing or is this a case of once again you know sucking in the maximum number of retail investors before the whole thing Comes tumbling down about their ears and the people that walk away with the really big gains are the guys who've been doing this for a living for 25 years.
1: Well, I guess there is a way for it to continue. And that is if we become increasingly socialistic or communistic and totalitarian. Because that would be a kind of a new equilibrium, right? Where we would just have to stop pretending that we're a capitalist society and a free society. And there are a lot of people that want to move us in, in that direction. Yeah. You know, and, and a lot of those conversations happen around geopolitical comparisons to China and compar- conversations about which model of society and politics and polity is better. Is it the sort of Western liberal democratic version? Or is it something that's more akin to Singapore in a benign version or a more malign version in the form of China? Uh, uh, You know, and I think just to kind of make an observation, I think that if you think about it as an ecosystem or as like a solar system, it's like a a large gravitational body has entered our solar system. And it has affected everything in in the system. And the problem is where if you think about it as an ecosystem, it's like the predators, the value investors have become increasingly emancipated. And have died off. So, if we are to return to something like we used to have, that's going to come with an, a, an adjustment that's so painful that it, it, it's it's difficult to imagine. And it's why our our political system is so unstable, because our political system is predicated on some levels of of some level of mobility and 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 equality, and that exists at a at a Less amount than anything that ha- I had in my lifetime.
0: Yeah, I, I I think that's 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 almost non-existent now. And, th- and that does bring us nicely onto politics and this i and this idea of of inequality being a driving force for a lot of this change because it's it's getting the inequality is getting more and more noticeable to everybody it seems except the Federal Reserve. You know, when, when you when you see these guys come out and say that we absolutely don't see any linkage between monetary policy and and uh, rising inequality. I, you know, I, there are a lot of things that I give central bankers a hard time for, but that, to me, is absolutely mm. egregious because there is there is zero chance that that's anything but a lie. And so, you know, when you, when you look at that and that the role that central banks have played, you know, we, you said this started in two thousand eight. Their role has changed and gotten bigger, and their grip on markets has necessarily gotten tighter over the years. How do you see their role now, and and what effects on the outcome are they having with the decisions they're making right now? Do you think?
1: You know, I, I think that
0: I guess there are two interesting
1: questions that come up. One is what what role are they having now? Hopefully, I'll remember to answer that, uh, but you can remind me. And the first one is the the first one is well, now I forgot the first one. <laughs> Sorry, um, <laughs> this happens sometimes. So. I guess I could just answer the second one then, the, the role that they play, which is I think that they're they're trying to hold everything together. And I'm not sure to what degree they believe what they say. You know, like there is a certain, we all sort of on some level, some of us more than others, lie to ourselves in order to justify our actions. But I don't know, I don't know to what degree they are this, uh, fixed and wedded to their models of the economy, and oblivious to what the rest of us experience, what the rest of us see. I mean, they live in the same world that you and I live in, can't they see what's happening? Can't they see these, the, the same phenomena that we, that we experience? Can't they listen to podcasts where people talk about it? So it's a, it is a bit confusing to me. It may also just be that they view the world as, as elites. They're part of an elite class of technocrats. And so they maybe ve- believe that they know best. I don't know. But I do think that they, that they are trying to hold it all together at this point. And I don't know. I don't believe they actually have a long-term strategy. I don't think that that's how the incentives work for, for policymakers like them. So I, that that would be my, I don't know if there's anything else to it. I think that's sort of the way they see their role. They just They're just holding it together.
0: But where does this? lead where does this move towards financial nihilism ultimately lead because you know, nihilism tends to lead to very dark places yeah and the you know the the longer this goes on to me the darker it gets and if we if we're looking at you know what's happened in crypto in the last few days we're looking at what's happened in spacs we're looking at what's happened in things like ark and what we're seeing now is a whole raft of these things that have drawn these financial nihilists in like moths to a flame, starting to do what, sadly, these types of things do every cycle, and that is take the money of those who can least afford to lose it. So, so where does this financial nihilism lead? Because it could now have a much broader and much more dangerous effect in terms of social disorder and unrest if what looks like it's starting to happen continues.
1: Yeah. I think on some level, we all kind of know deep down. I think there's a lot of anxiety in the culture, whether it's expressed in in film or in other forms of artwork. People have always ha- had sort of obsessions with the end of the world. But yeah. I, do th- I do feel like that has grown and it has spilled over everywhere, whether it's in climate, whether it's in doomsday predictions around the economy. I think that the, we've been able to get this far because America has the global monetary standard, and we've been able to subsidize this ride and and allow this to continue for an indefinite period of time. But I think that at some point, what's going to happen is, and we're we're closer. I don't I don't know. No one knows, but I, I like you. I've sort of been stunned at the incompetence and the tone deafness of our of our leadership. Mm-hmm. I think that the international dimensions of the world today and the changing global order and the, the rise of China and the conflict between the United States and China and the increasing um, observation that the Chinese Communist Party and the and the government in China is really not interested in playing that game, in playing the game that we sought to Institutionalized after the, the end of the Cold War, and which we've been so good at playing at, at great cost, I would argue, also to, to many people in the country. So my sense is that we just end up seeing America become increasingly authoritarian. And eventually, there's either going to be a descent into totalitarianism, or we're going to get a leader- who will use that power that he or she will have accumulated in order to reset or bring us back to something that more closely resembles the United States or the Western world that we're familiar with. The thing that's difficult is that no one knows what war or conflict of the sort that I think we feel is coming is going to look like in the 21st century. We know some of the the weapons that are involved, but we don't really understand how all of those things come together, and more importantly, we don't understand how people will react in that type of situation. What kind of expectations people have, their ability to come together, um, their ability to be manipulated—you know—all those things. Because we also live in this very different informational landscape where people have, I think, their the more tenuous relationships with the world. Again, we talked about this in terms of nihilism and also markets with objective reality. They have less tenuous relationships with each other. And so it's, that's the scariest part for me. It is how fragile we are as a society. Mm-hmm. And it has less to do with what other people can do to us. It's what, it's what we're doing to ourselves and what can be done to us with just a few pushes and a few pulls
0: what what kind of opportunity does this kind of western financial nihilism of, of offer up to china for example because you you've had some incredible interviews on hidden forces talking about china the recent one with josh rogan was absolutely
1: yeah, spelled You yeah
0: know, it's fantastic and everyone listening to this should absolutely check that out but but you've obviously spoke had a lot of conversations about china so so what kind of opportunity does this throw up for them? Because it does seem to be that. It does seem to be an opportunity.
1: You know, it's taken me a long time to come to as clear a view on this dynamic as I have today. Because when I started down this road with the podcast, when I started the podcast, I had the same view of China that I had 10, 20 years before that, which was that this is a country that's moving from communism to capitalism, and that they're actually, you know, more capitalistic than Americans, the kind of Jim Rogers view that the Chinese mm. are—you know—they're they're actually very capitalistic. And it took me some time to really understand how different China is and how different the Chinese Communist Party is, and the organs of government, and how and the the brain, the the way, the intelligence of that system, and how it's organized versus what we have today. And I think that. The Chinese Communist Party has very different motivations than, let's say, Western democracies. They're a fundamentally insecure organization. They're politically insecure because they don't have a popular mandate. And so the risks that they're willing to take in order to prevent internal dissent and internal instability are much greater than what we have here. And so I don't know if I'm answering your question, um, but what worries me is that they're they're going to continue to be willing to escalate, and at some point, we are going to have to hold our ground. That that's the way I see it. And whether that's going to be Taiwan, I know everyone keeps bringing up Taiwan now. I always think it's interesting when something becomes an almost consensus view among a mm-hmm. particular class of individuals. But whether it's Taiwan or something else, because it's usually something else, it's never the thing that everyone is worried about, I do think that we're going to escalate into a crisis. And at that point, there's going to have to be a reevaluation on both sides about where we want to take it. And what concerns me in our case is that we haven't—there doesn't really seem to be the kind of leadership in this country— that would instill confidence, whether it's Donald Trump or Joe Biden. And you don't really see any on the horizon. There isn't there isn't a sort of unifying government and strong leadership. I don't know if you feel that way, if you see that.
0: Yeah. No, I I, like, I do see that. And but unfortunately, I also see that here in the UK. Um, I, I see it in, in other countries around the world. We're seeing, you know, particularly what's going on in France at the moment with the, you know, the military over there seeing exactly the same thing but actually signing petitions to that effect that that yeah you know, and this in a country that has a habit and a history of these kind of military coup type situations yeah. so i think that's i think that's that's a, a great point and it, and it extends far beyond america i don't think that's a particularly american centric thing but you you, know, you mentioned the word crisis there and and the idea that this will end in a quote unquote crisis and that kind of brings me to to another um, really s- strong factor in all this and that's the media you know y- you you and i both set out to to have honest conversations with people about what's going on without any kind of bias apart from our own you know personal biases which we're both open about in those conversations there's no there's no kind of hidden agenda here but the sensationalist nature of the media today uh, makes a crisis something mm. that forty years ago wouldn 't have been a crisis it would have been a situation right <laughs> but now it 's a crisis and uh, you know. and i 've been shocked at as this era that we 're talking about and you know we 're using this term financial nihilism to as a, as a kind of catchall for all of it but i 've been shocked genuinely at, at just how biased the media is towards Negative sensationalist headlines in the age of of you know pay you for clicks. What role do you see that playing, and how, and how dangerous is the the direction the media is currently traveling in, in terms of creating a real crisis out of something that wouldn't necessarily need to be one?
1: Yeah, so I, on in, on some level, I wonder how different that is because I I feel like that sort of sensationalism. Has more or less always been a part of of the news. A desire to make a story interesting or compelling.
0: Right, but but, but didn't we used to have balanced? You know, that, that I agree with you. I but think, I think you know, what's, what I think what's we what's had? Missing yeah. is the balance.
1: Yeah, I know what. I you know what I think we had. I think that the that the people in the news in the fifties and sixties and seventies were more invested in the stability of the country than they are today. I think what you tend to see today, a great example is, uh, uh, and it's not just, I'm not going to just pick on Tucker Carlson, because I could find multiple other examples that align with him politically and examples on the other side of that equation. But when I listen to Tucker Carlson's program, I get anxious. I feel nervous about the future, not because... Also, because it makes me nervous that he's that he is uh-huh. feeds that level of paranoia. But it actually gets into me. What he's saying makes me feel paranoid. It makes me question yeah. question the world around me. And I, I and I think that the job of 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 the news should be, and perhaps this is to your point was, to try and expose the truth, but to also recognize that like. Your platform, if it's if it's very big, is powerful, and that if Walter Cronkite comes out and tells people that um, the the president of the United States is actually trying to chemically castrate every American, I'm not saying anyway. I'm not saying Terry Carlson said this, but you know, <laughs> right. the the point is that it, that information is powerful and credibility is powerful. So, I,
0: you know, I, I well, well, but but look, but going back to those times, the nation. Whether it be America um, with you know the Walter Cronkites of the world, or whether it be the UK with the David Frost of the world, or, or other countries that had their own, you know, th- there were certain journalists who were trusted, were balanced, were fair, and and were respected, but there were there was a handful of them, and so they kind of stood out on their own. But now there are so many. News anchors, political commentators—you know, there's something for everyone. And of course, they—they they naturally, I guess, fracture left and right. They, they fracture, you know, yeah. along a vertical, along a horizontal line, rather than the vertical line. And and that feels very dangerous because whatever your pre-existing um, biases are, to, to that earlier point about social media, you can find a polemic commentator that's made just for you, right? And then, and then you end back and up yeah. in those echo chambers, where that's where you get everything from.
1: Yeah, and you also have to wonder how much of this is, are we really comparing apples to oranges here? Because it's not like we have the same news landscape, the same media machine that we had in the 1950s or the 60s today. Today, a lot of what passes as news is actually ads. It's ad-driven content, or content that might be created by a news organization, but it's, it's created under the incentives that are driven by a commercial operation in the form of a, of a social media platform. And it does feel, to me, pretty clear now that this is the dominant force that's driving the kind of content that we see. And I mean, look, dude, this recent stuff with Elon Musk and Dogecoin and Bitcoin. I watched this stuff happening. And it, the, had this happened 10 years ago, I, I mean, what what do you think would have been the result? How would news organizations have covered this? And how would people have responded?
0: I, I don't know that it would have necessarily been covered, right? Certainly not to the extent it is now. And that's testament to just how a how powerful social media is in making sure everyone knows about that story because it's in everybody's Instagram feeds and in everybody's Twitter feed. Uh. But it also enables, again, people to pick sides, right? It's are you Team Elon or are you Team Bitcoin? And before that it was are you Team Tesla or Team Tesla Q? And and before that, was, yeah, and then but but even within those communities, you've got are you a Bitcoin maximalist or are you yeah, you know, one of those Ethereum jokers because Ethereum's not a real cryptocurrency. Yeah, there's just fracturing everywhere. Yeah. And so the fact that Elon Musk has managed to do what he's done with a few tweets over the last few days, frankly, shouldn't surprise anybody who's been watching him for the last couple of years. But by the same token, is any of it really news? Really? Well, I guess what I what, right.
1: So that speaks to something which is that I think that. What would have been considered aberrant behavior ex- insanely aberrant behavior only a few years ago
0: quickly normalizes yes and but but that but that that comes down to consequences and lack of consequences lack right? of That's, consequences yeah yeah
1: yeah I mean I I and and that kind of there is I think that feeds the nihilism because there's a Absolutely. kind of sense that like well then nothing matters really so. Why not just put all my life savings into this YOLO bet? Why not just? I, it doesn't matter. None of it matters. You know, and I, and I and I and then again with with in terms of news, it there there is a culture similarly I think among people in news organization which is really my coverage doesn't really matter. It's not going to really move the needle because, like you said, plenty of stories have been written up about Elon Musk. But why hasn't anything changed? And that's also, you know, f- confusing to me. I don't really know entirely the reason for that. Do people care less also? And the less they, the less anything changes, the less they care, and the less they care, the less things change,
0: you know? M- maybe. I, I, I would posit that perhaps it's precisely because there have been no consequences that, I mean, look, he's, he's, He's committed the single biggest act of securities fraud in history, right? And and he cannot, by court order, deny that. Which again it is such a, a, a ridiculous outcome that oh no, we're not going to prosecute you for securities fraud, but you can never deny that you did it. it is such a cop out mm-hmm. on the part of regulators that, of course, it emboldens anybody to do that. I, I think
1: what I'm what I'm sort of touching on is that I think. The struggle that a lot of journalists and good journalists that are trying to do good work are having is how to break through, how to educate people, so that if Elon comes into the crypto ecosystem, and he pumps Bitcoin, and all the Bitcoiners get excited, and they they jump on the bandwagon, then he basically comes out and says, actually, Bitcoin uses insane amounts of energy. I, this isn't consistent with my brand. I'm going to invest in Dogecoin, and I'm just going to fix its transaction scaling problems. How do- Journalists find a way to communicate to the vast majority of people that may know nothing about the scaling limitations of, of of public distributed ledger technology of blockchains. How do they find a way to communicate that so that people get it? And they're like, "Oh, but, this is this is fraud. This is bullshit. This guy is a con artist."
0: But but this but this is I think this is part of the answer, but also part of the problem is that what's happened. Uh, and, and as you know, I've watched with fascination the whole must thing unfold Yeah, totally. Um, over the last few years. You know, as you, and we've sp- spoken at this at length many, many times. But the common thread is that the scales don't fall from people's eyes until one of two things happens, particularly with regards to him. One, he wades into their swimming pool where, you know, they know everything that's going on in that pool and makes some ridiculous pronouncement that people suddenly go, well, that's just either impossible or it's just complete nonsense, then the scales fall from their eyes. Or as it seems in the case of cryptocurrencies, something he says costs them money, right? And so if, if those are the only two things that can change your view of the man, what chance do journalists have to educate people? Because people don't care unless it costs them money or it, directly contrast with something that they already know to be true. So how can a journalist actually educate people? Because people reading a story about Elon Musk, 95% of them have made up their mind before they read that story. They either think he is everything he purports to be, in which case any critical article is is not listened to or read properly. It's just derided and, and, you know, they pick apart every line. Or if they think that, he's all the things that other people claim he is, It's just an echo chamber for them. I I don't see in an age where celebrities can control their own narratives to such an extent and speak to their own audiences directly and and foster that audience, I don't see how journalism really works in those cases until that person or that organisation actually makes a mistake And expose themselves accidentally en masse to everybody. At that point, the journalist can step in and say, well, this has been coming for a while and here's what you missed kind of thing. Yeah, I
1: wonder also if we've moved from an age where people were educated in, they had a, 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 a systemic or a systematic way of thinking through problems, you know, empirical models in their head for judging reality that they could apply independently of authority figures to a world where people really depend on what someone says, someone they trust says in order to determine what's true or not. So in right. the case of Elon, if he went on Joe Rogan, and Joe Rogan called 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 his bluff, if Joe Rogan went from being a believer to being someone who said, you know what, this guy's a con artist, you can't believe him, and he, he, he made a point to show that to people, would that be how you reach people today?
0: Because maybe people but, but don't have... They... Oh, but, uh, sorry to interrupt, but maybe that is how you reach them. But are those people just going along with Joe Rogan? Are they really seeing That's exactly it, right. Or...
1: That's what I'm saying. Yeah. So that's the yeah. point. So if, it feels like people have lost their ability to think critically, to, to right. arrive at critical judgments independently. And I don't know if you feel this too, because I, I kind of feel it also. It's you kind of question whether the world that you used to live in was the way that you thought it was, or maybe it was just your imagination. You know, like the the I grew up. I was I was born in the very early nineteen eighties, and I graduated college. I graduated high school in two thousand. My memory of what life was like in the nineties feels like that couldn't have been real life. Right. You know. Do you feel that way?
0: Yeah, and, and look, and, and for me. My equivalent period would be the eighties, which is a lot further ago. And you know, for something that was ten years earlier, it was fifty years earlier in terms of progress. Right. So, so I so I I totally get that. But I. But I, I would just I think-
1: say this. I, sorry, I want to say this too, though. I I didn't feel that way in two thousand and eight. Do you see what I'm right. saying? Like I didn't right. feel in two thousand and eight that the world that the nineteen eighties, which would have been the equivalent of period of time, yeah. was somehow not real or unbelievable or hard something feels like something f- feels fundamentally different in the last 10 years something has changed so that the world no longer feels as tangible or substantive right. as it used to feel for my entire life
0: well i, I look I, I i've thought about this a lot and I, and i agree with that, that I, and all i can come up with when i when i think that problem through the answer i get just makes me Question myself rather than anything else because I come back to this idea of if you make money no longer real, you essentially make nothing real because in the world we live in, everything, realistically speaking, has a value. And so I, but I hate to be that finance guy that puts everything on to central banks and monetary policy because it yeah. seems like such an easy cop out for someone in finance. But the more I the more I think about it, and you know, my 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 daughter's in the process of buying her first house. And, and so you look at the world through the eyes of a of a 30 year old with with two very young kids who's buying their first house, is very excited about it, and, and you look at the reality of what they're going through, and it is all predicated upon zero cost of capital, all of it. Their, their entire lives, basically, are predicated upon that continuing. And mm. if that doesn't continue, their world will change for the worse in ways that they can't possibly fathom right now, but, but I can. But I but I often wonder whether it's because I've been immersed in this world of finance and that's that that's where I see the fault lines. Maybe it's inevitable. I know. I think that's a huge part of it,
1: and we've talked about that in
0: this conversation.
1: But, you know, I can't help but think that it's actually in some ways... The explanation is simpler, which is that our world, our existence has become increasingly intermediated through multiple layers of technology. You and I are sitting here on what would have been considered science fiction in the 90s. You know, like, this is like when you watched uh, Space Odyssey 2001, and they were on like a telescreen, right? Right? Or like the Jetsons or whatever. But this is how, like, increasingly we live our, our lives. I, I'm in touch with so many people, and I'm inundated with so much information, but only a, a very small amount of that is analog. Only a very small amount of that is in the physical world, touching people, speaking with them, having those relationships. And a lot of times, what I also tend to find is that things that we experience through, again, through intermediation, feel less real. We're less sure, What was I, well, I was speaking with Grant yesterday. Was I speaking with him? Because I was texting with him. Was I texting with him? Was I DMing him on Twitter? Was it through LinkedIn we were talking? Did I get an email? I can't quite remember. And I think maybe, and this, to bring it back to my experience of my brain tumor and dementia, maybe this is a bias from that experience, or maybe actually it's informed by what I went through and something that I I know that very few people realize, which is that memory is very ephemeral, and it's Mm -hmm. very easy to doubt what you think you know. And it feels like we're living in an age where doubt, people's doubt in, you name it, whatever it is, has increased. And that might just be because, or a big part of that might be because of how we experience the world today. And that isn't conducive to forming sturdy memories or sturdy convictions about things. Because things can change so easily, you know. You read an article; someone can just edit it, take it out. It's not a newspaper; mm-hmm. it's not something you have in your hands. And so, maybe our brains weren't evolved to live in this kind of a world, and that this explains a big part of what's happening to the psyche, to the zeitgeist.
0: Yeah, I mean, it's it's absolutely possible. It's absolutely possible. And, and I, you know, I, I I wonder how it plays out from here. Because at, at the end of the day, you come back to this fact that. Mankind has progressed essentially nonstop. There have been, in the scheme of of our historical timelines, very short periods where there's been, you know, regression. But there's never been technological regression. There's been societal regression, but it tends to constantly move forward, which makes you wonder how how this particular uh, period transitions into. The next, whether we do regress for a brief period of time and then move forward, and you know, part of this podcast series that Fleck and I have been doing about the end game is really—it's not about an end game at all. It's just about a transition. That that how do we get from here to whatever comes next? So, stripping the finance out of it, how do we get? Do you think from here to whatever comes next from a from a societal point of view?
1: Um.
0: Well, I'll, I'll,
1: I'll, I'll, get, I'll take a stab at that. Before I do, I should say another thing that came up for me when, I, when we were in discussing the sort of ephemeral nature of the world today is that I don't think it's a coincidence that things like Bitcoin and distributed ledger technologies have become so popular and captured the imagination of so many people. And that the words that you hear to describe them are often things like truth machine. Mm-hmm. Because I think people are trying to find something that's real in this digital world, something that doesn't change, something that gives them confidence. Um, so to answer your question, I think you asked how, how do we, we transition?
0: Yeah, the transition, yeah. From-
1: yeah. Um, in, in terms of like the, the way we experience the world? Because we talked so, yeah, about transition yeah, sure. in geopolitical terms. Yeah, in political terms, but
0: but just but just us as a society. When when you talk, because I think you're right. We're we we we're, we're more connected and yet more isolated than we've ever been. So how does that resolve itself? Because they don't make very easy bedfellows. Those two ideas.
1: That's a really great question. I mean, some people will tell you that we just evolve, and that that's the process that we're currently in. That humanity is evolving. And, and the people that are just more naturally acclimated to this world that we're moving into are going to be the ones that thrive in it. And let's say people that w- would have done better in a in a world where maybe we, you, they're really good in a room or they're really good public speakers. Maybe those people struggle. I think, I mean, I, I don't know. I wish I had a an easy answer. I think. I do think that there's going to be a lot of, if I had to guess, you know, like for me when I what I saw, and this this is a political, you know, it brings in political elements to your answer. The invasion of the Capitol in early January was for me a really dark and emblematic moment Mm -hmm. because I do think that internally we're. There are people that still live in a different world. I mean, we we all, there there are many more worlds that we all live in. And we're all sort of living in the same digital world. Granted, we have different experiences of it. But we all can occupy that space. But the physical world still does matter. If I had to guess, I mean, I always feel a little uncomfortable doing this. But if I had to guess, I think there's a, a rising likelihood that we'll see political terrorism in the United States, homegrown violence. I think that international I think that countries like Russia, or the governments of Russia, their intelligence agencies and in China will exploit that in the same way that we've our intelligence agencies have exploited it. I think the the battle lines will become increasingly difficult to discern. It'll become harder to understand who is your friend and who is your enemy, whether that's that's in your in, in the, within the, the country or without. And I'm I guess when you put it that way, Grant it makes it feel like we have a much longer way to go, mm-hmm. because we do struggle to determine what's real and what's not real. You know.
0: Yeah. yeah. No. I, I. I think. I think that's. I think that's exactly right. And. I, and I think that's why people like me who've grown up in a real world and value that real world immensely. That's. I think why we struggle to embrace fully the virtual world, and it also, to me, explains why the people who are Digital natives and 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 absolutely embrace the virtual world struggle to embrace the real world and that, and that y- you can only see that going one way because dinosaurs I'm using air quotes like me are going to be gone long before the digital natives do and so maybe the world is on a one way ride away from the real and towards the virtual. Well, so that makes me think of something which is that maybe.
1: You're, uh, you're technically Gen X. Is that what your demographic yeah, is? Yeah, yeah, So maybe your generation and the previous generation really don't see the world the way I do. Like maybe when I talk about the confusion that I feel around my recollection of what my life used to be like versus what it's like today, maybe that's something that's more common. First of all, maybe it's just me. Maybe it's more, I don't think so. Oh, maybe, maybe it's more common with millennials who kind of were right in that middle period between the analog and the digital.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: And maybe that's less of an issue for digital natives, for people that grew up with mobile technologies and and, and hyperconnected internet. And maybe that's what this all is. It's, it's the sort of tension of transition from one way of living, one view of the world, to another. And at some point those of us that are around that maybe don't feel comfortable with it have to somehow just become acclimated to it i don't know but it does make one nervous when you think about the fact that we are flesh and blood and human beings you know can die in explosions to bring it back to the point about political terrorism and so are we equipped to manage nuclear arsenals or you know cars that drive at 80 miles an hour are we equipped to live in a world where there are physical dangers that are everywhere, while at the same time being so kind of checked out. I mean, Mike Green and I talked about this in an episode that we did together when we were talking about passive investing, which is this sort of checked out, set it forget it mm-hmm. type of thing. And we see this everywhere with automation that people become increasingly just acclimated to this idea that someone else will solve the problem.
0: Yeah, dele- yeah, delegation, dele- yeah, delegating absolutely. it. Yeah. Yeah, I, I, th- I think that's I think that's absolutely right. And and look, yeah, uh, you know, the interesting thing is that man has always evolved and pushed the boundaries and pushed the barriers. But realistically speaking, most of that, with the exception of medical science, obviously, most of that technological breakthroughs have been to make his life easier and to be able to, to have to do less work and and to have the luxury of being lazier. That's what we've tried to do. And so yeah. when you keep pushing that way, how do I make my life easier? How do I make things more convenient, less hard work? Then, then the direction of travel is is fairly obvious.
1: Yeah, something else that I thought about along those lines uh, recently was that automation in the U.S. it presents a political problem because it makes people increasingly useless. And right. in a representative democracy people have political value, institutionally speaking, even if they don't have economic value. Whereas in a country like China, in some ways, automation is a political opportunity to solve a problem of illegitimacy in the nature of the system. And I I do that, again, to bring it back to the geopolitical dimensions. I worry about, and I did an episode with Chris Bros about the future of warfare. He was- mm-hmm staff director for the Senate Armed Services Committee, and he also was—or maybe he was staff director for John McCain, and he was whatever the other term is. And we were talking about the future of warfare and, and the fact that him and others like him—and I, I and Josh Wolfe, I think, will make the same argument—they feel that we we have to invest in these technologies. We have to invest in autonomous weapons of different sorts, because it's just the game theory. That's what our adversaries are doing. But you kind of— you do wonder, and you look back at films that obviously, you know, they might have seemed alarmist in the 1990s, a movie like Terminator. Mm-hmm. But you look back now and you're like, I mean, that, is that just where we're going? You know, and it's, it's a really, no one wants to live their life that way. So we all kind of just say, nah, whatever, maybe we are. But you know what? I have, I have my kids and they're really amazing. Or, yeah. you know, it's a beautiful day outside. I'm just going to go take a walk. And you go and just kind of forget it. And maybe that's just a limitation of how human beings live, like what we are able to do. And maybe we weren't meant to have this kind of power. I think about that a lot, you know. Like, is there is there knowledge that is t- too dangerous for humanity to have? You know, was the splitting of the atom an example of that? Mm-hmm. Was that an example of something that we would have been better off not knowing and not exploiting? And is, yeah. the, is there power that is too great in the hands of a species that evolved from a highly aggressive and is a highly aggressive animal? And I, I, if I had to guess, I'd say the answer is yes to that. And I do yeah. worry about how we can how I do worry about the um, the forces that are going to be increasingly weighing down the likelihood of our survival. You know, and which is why I did an episode also with Toby uh Ord on existential risks, and if I remember correctly in his book, he did sort of take the view that if we can get through the 21st century, then our chances of surviving in the in the next century are uh, greatly increased because whatever it is that we've got to figure out, we've got to figure it out in this century and it does feel like that to me it does feel like that to me yeah, and I don't know, you know, I don't know if you've been following all this UFO stuff. I also kind of it's an interesting time to have all this come at you because then all the news media is telling you that the Pentagon and the government is releasing conclusive footage' that's, tell, that's basically conclusive in the sense that we have no clue what this is. It's not our shit. These aren't our right. spacecraft. And they're moving at speeds and conducting maneuvers that would kill a normal person. And then they're diving into the water and disappearing. And you're just kind of like, wait, how do I wrap my head around this? What are you telling me, and where does this well, fit see, in that, all of isn't that? Isn't
0: it interesting? Because because my instant reaction to that is, why are you telling me this now? Right. If this has been classified the ben Hunt, for fifty the ben Hunt years, thing. Yeah, why no, am I hearing this? Absolutely right. Yeah. Why? Why this? Why now? But but why do you something think? like that? With something like that, which has been the source of great conjecture for 60, 70 years. Uh, why are you suddenly declassifying this stuff and putting this stuff out there so that people have suddenly got something to think about that that isn't anything we've spoken about over this last hour and change? And and I can't help but think that's a very deliberate. Oh, look at you know as, uh, the old Nitty yeah. Izzard line. Look over there, a badger with a gun. Yeah, it's it's that kind of thing, right? It's 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 a it's a high tech bread and circuses is what it is.
1: Yeah. So do you think it it is a uh, it's a concoction?
0: There's no there there. I I I I don't know. I mean, I really don't know. But I certainly, I, I mean, I haven't been following it. But I certainly wouldn't read a story like that and go, "Oh wow, there's UFOs out there, right?" I, I'd be thinking, "Well, hang on a second, <laughs> hold on, hang on a second. Like it, it just that's my instant reaction to that because I say I haven't been following the story, and I, and I just think it's really weird that that you would come out with this now. Yeah. Listen but before before we wrap this up, Dimitri. I want to I wanna, talk to you about uh, cryptocurrencies, and I, and I don't do this a lot, but I but I'm interested in your views on them simply because I know that you're very thoughtful about these things. I see you post a whole bunch of skeptical comments on Twitter, but I also see you post constructive pieces, uh, and 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 you've you've had, done some fascinating interviews with people in the in the in the crypto community. So so just. I'm interested in your personal journey in crypto because I know it actually started quite some years ago. Um, How's that unfolded for you and where are you now with the whole thing?
1: Yeah, so I mean, I I developed some familiarity with blockchain databases and blockchain technology in 2012 and 2013 through Bitcoin. But I didn't really get into it until 2017. And what interested me, where I focused my attention on was understanding the, the scaling problem. The challenges to scaling Bitcoin and to scaling Ethereum and what I learned from that process. And in the time being, I've come to view blockchain, so to speak, writ large, DLT, distributed ledger technologies. A lot of what we've been seeing in the space, what I didn't, for example, appreciate with Bitcoin, because what I came to the view in 2017, that Bitcoin just couldn't scale and that therefore would never really be money. And that it would have to be something else that would take its place. And what I didn't appreciate then was that, and this is my view, some people may not agree with it, it's that Bitcoin was never really about money. It was never really about solving the problem of banking or money. It wasn't even necessarily about the fairness issue around how money is distributed. At its core, I think it's about the wealth gap. And it is a private sector mechanism for redistributing wealth in the face of the inequities caused by public policy in the fallout of 2008. I think that ultimately has been the driver for Bitcoin. Because if you look at how the Bitcoin community faces problems, challenges to Bitcoin, whether it's energy usage, whether it's scaling issues, their response to that is to fight everything head on Mm -hmm. to ensure that nothing affects the value, that the value of Bitcoin continues to rise because the price is what matters. It isn't actually about making the technology better. That's my view. And of course, there's a desire to increase the technology, but only insofar as it increases the price. And if you listen to those conversations, they're they're very sensitive to how changes will impact people's desire to hold Bitcoin. Because acquiring and holding Bitcoin is what gives it its price. So I think that a, a huge part of what has been driving this space whether it's Bitcoin, whether it's DeFi, and a lot of the tokens, the RC 20 tokens built on Ethereum, are the same Ponzi dynamics that drive equity markets and the same kind of market nihilism or what Tony Greer, our friend, mutual friend Tony Greer, would call postmodernism in markets. Mm-hmm. It's, um, it's really just a wealth redistribution mechanism. It's part of the same zero-sum dynamics that inform so much of the speculation that happens in equity markets.
0: Yeah, you know that's actually that's actually really well put. Well, look, mate. Um, before we finish, I, I, well, we began with you and, and your personal journey, and, and I want to wrap up by asking you what what's next for Hidden Forces. What what, what are your plans for it? What do you want to do with it? Where's it going to go from here? Because I watched it evolve, and it's been fascinating to watch, and it just gets better and better. So, what do you want to do with it from here?
1: Well, I I, I enjoy doing the show so much that sometimes it gets in the way of (laughs) what some other people in my life tell me I should be doing. (laughs) Um, (laughs) Because I get so much value from actually speaking to so many people and advancing my own sort of understanding of the world. First and foremost, for me, as as we've started this conversation, I said, you know, when it began, it was this platform for inquiry and self-development. But it's become a way to help people gain the tools that they need to understand the world better, to understand the systems of power that structure the world around them, and to think critically, because this is a, a problem that we talked about, of course, during the course of the conversation, that people have a hard time thinking critically. They have a hard time assessing, coming to a determination about what is true and what is not with an independent framework that isn't, that it's not dependent on an authority figure, for mm-hmm. example. And for me, it's, a, it's an educational platform. You know, to the extent that I can use this to advance people's knowledge and to also do it from a place of, you know, you, you and I share some values. You know, we, we have cer- there are certain things that we think are aligned with personal integrity. We see a lot of stuff in the world today that we don't agree with, mm-hmm. whether it's in financial markets, whether it's in politics, with our discourse. And so for me, you know, Hidden Forces is a platform to have civilized conversations, from, from, a, uh, from a good faith conversations, where, where I and my guests try and think through problems that other people are facing. And it's just especially relevant and meaningful at a time where the world is changing so rapidly that people's primary and secondary and college and even master's degrees quickly become less relevant than they would have in the past. And they need to constantly update their knowledge of the world. And there's really no great place to become educated to, yeah. to, to where you can, you know. So I think that's sort of how I see the platform.
0: Well, listen, mate, I've enjoyed that journey so far. And I will be a keen supporter of whatever you decide to do next. But, you know, there will be people out there listening to this that haven't tuned in yet and aren't familiar with it. So just give yourself a plug and let people understand how to find you and all that good stuff on on Twitter and and the and the website. Yeah, so
1: you can basically go through the entire Hidden Forces library of all the previous episodes I've done. You can do that on any podcast platform, but the really the best way to do it is to do it through our website at hiddenforces.io because you can actually scroll through they have pictures of all the guests and you can also open up each episode page and look through the rundowns, which are the notes that I create ahead of every episode, the transcripts, and the overtimes. Because like you, I've never taken sponsors for my show. It's always been a subscription-driven model. And that's part of, again, my desire to put the content first. That's how I would say you could also follow me on Twitter at kafinus and Hidden Forces at Hidden Forces Pod. And that's what I would say if I'm not, yeah, I'm not the best self promoter.
0: Hey, listen, you, you and me both between <laughs> yeah, the two yeah. of us though, we should be able to help each other. out. Yeah, for sure. Listen, Dimitri, man, this has been great. I love every chance you and I get to talk to each other and I'm, and I'm so delighted that this time there'll be plenty of people to get a chance to, to actually eavesdrop on this conversation, and, you know, get to know you a little bit better and, um, and hopefully, uh, you know, tune into your work, which is absolutely fantastic. You know, I'm, I'm a very proud a subscriber to your service. And, and I, I, I listen eagerly to everything you put out. So thank you for all the help work you do, because nobody prepares more uh, for these podcasts than you do. It, it, it <laughs> bewilders me how much work you put into these. It really does. And, and it shows. Every every episode has been fantastic.
1: I appreciate you saying that. It's actually a good point too, which is, I again, I did say I have a paid subscription model, but if people want to support the program and, and and gain access to things like the episode over time, because I, I usually record for two hours. The second hour is always behind the paywall, and that's oftentimes the best content is in the second hour, as well as the rundowns, which are the notes and the transcripts. Those are all available on patreon.com slash hiddenforces. And I also want to say, Grant, listen, man, I, uh, I I have so much respect for you, as you know, but the thing that I've learned the most from you, it isn't your amazing newsletters, which I love to read. And by the way, they've gotten better and better, and I love the formatting, and I love the sort of the the design. They've really gotten wonderful. But I'll tell you something. The thing that I've learned from you that is most unique to you is you're the most gracious giving person I've ever met in this industry. And for a long time, I didn't have that attitude. You know, I was, I think, especially because I was more insecure um, and for all sorts of reasons. But watching you operate for so many years and how gracious you are with the integrity that you operate, I've tried to hold myself to that standard. And so I, and I, f- I found in the last year by giving more without thinking about, because oftentimes I, you know, I've, I've in my life kind of been concerned about not necessarily transactional relationship, but not getting screwed over or whatever else, seeing someone like you operate successfully in this world is incredibly inspiring. And I just want to say that of all the things I've learned from you, it's that. And I'm just deeply appreciative of of it. And thank you for having me on your podcast.
0: Well, mate, I'm I'm incredibly touched. That means the world to me. Thank you. Um, Mate, hopefully we will see each other soon. For now, I will let you go. But listen, thanks for sparing all this time. It's been an absolute blast. Thank you, Grant. Well, as promised, that was uh, an enormously engaging hour and change with a man I admire greatly. Dimitri's perspective on the world is hugely influential to the Hidden Forces audience. And in my opinion, it deserves a far greater exposure. His work ethic, his persistence, and his intelligence are remarkable. And Dimitri's framing of this concept of financial nihilism, I think, perfectly captures the zeitgeist. And that's something which I think is going to be an extremely important concept for investors to understand as things unfold. Or potentially unravel from here. All that remains is for me to thank you for listening. Uh, If you don't already follow me on Twitter, you can do so quite easily. You'll find me at ttmygh. And just a reminder that you can find Dimitri at Kofinas, K-O-F-I-N-A-S. Thanks again for listening, and I'll see you next time.